This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Miles Carroll, the Professor of Emerging Viruses at the Pandemic Sciences Institute at Oxford University in the United Kingdom. We'll be discussing the influence of landscape patterns on exposure to Lassa fever virus in Guinea. Welcome, Dr. Carroll. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Let's start with Lassa fever. What is it? Lassa fever is an acute and uh, often fatal viral disease occurring primarily in West Africa, and it's usually acquired from infected rats. So is West Africa where it's endemic? Correct. Primarily in the countries of Liberia, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, and Republic of Guinea. What are the signs and symptoms? Usually after a few days after infection, typical symptoms are headache, sore throat, muscle pain, chest pain, and then progressing to nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. So, you know, not that dissimilar to the early symptoms of uh, Ebola virus disease. But uh, in severe cases, you also get facial swelling and fluid in the lung cavity and hemorrhaging from mucous membranes, which result in a drop in blood pressure. And up to 20% of hospitalized cases are actually fatal. Mm, So it is pretty dangerous. It certainly is. But as many infections are actually asymptomatic or have mild symptoms. So, but these cases are never reported because the patient isn't showing symptoms. But when you do show symptoms, it can be extremely dangerous and fatal. Do we know how many people get it globally annually and how many people die from it? It's pretty hard to get those numbers because many people are never actually diagnosed, even fatal cases, because these cases occur in countries where they haven't got great public health services and they haven't got great diagnostics to support and identify the infectious agent. However, estimates of annual human cases of Lassa fever infections in West Africa are estimated to be up to 100,000 and associated deaths are about 5,000. But these are all based on an epidemiological studies that were performed in 1987 in Sierra Leone, and so they're modeled on that data. So characterizing the distribution and transmission intensities of Lassa fever in endemic areas is essential to be able to improve on those estimates so we can get an accurate picture of the, of the real threat of the virus. Is there a treatment for it? In a lot of cases in severe virus infections, there's a number of licensed products that are thrown at patients in the hope to try to reduce symptoms, increase availability. But there are no known antiviral drugs that actually work against Lassa fever that have actually been shown in a randomized study to actually have any benefit. And there's no licensed vaccine either. Your study is about Guinea particularly. Why there? Back at the beginning of the West Africa Ebola epidemic, which started, we think, in 2013, but really got going in 2014, I deployed with a group of scientists from what was called Public Health England, Port and Down, to provide diagnostic support to MSF, who had just set up a, a treatment centre up in the prefecture of Gekadu in the forested region of Guinea, which is the epicentre of the Ebola outbreak. So 
That's why uh, we carried on a program of research looking at the immunity to Ebola in survivors. And uh, this project is associated with the work we're doing looking at potential spillover events in the bushmeat hunter population in that region of Guinea. So we already talked about this a little bit, and you said there's no real good numbers about how many people get it every year, but are you able to be more specific in Guinea itself, or is that still a number you're not entirely sure of? It's a number we're not entirely sure of. We do see every year isolated cases of about two or three or four Lassa fevers that get physically diagnosed by molecular tests, and they usually are, you know, result in fatal outcome. What were you looking for particularly when you went ahead with this study, adding on to your other work? As I said before, there is a significant lack of data, a paucity of data, on the true burden of disease of Lassa fever in West Africa. And what we were trying to do is to improve on that by looking at the antibody response to Lassa fever, i.e. the footprints that the virus leaves behind, um, to try to improve the accuracy of how many people are physically infected. And also, what is the contribution of the landscape changes in the forested region um, on the incidence of Lassa fever? Tell us about those varying landscapes of Guinea and their effect on Lassa fever cases. So, so our study was looking at two regions of Guinea. One is the lowland regions of the Atlantic coast, which is very a, a shrub um, a type of ecology. And also in the north of the, well, actually the north, the southwest of the southeast of the country, sorry, there's this significant forest that straddles the border of Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. And so with those two different landscapes, we could ask the question, is Lassa fever more prevalent in a forested region or in a, an unforested region that's mainly agriculture as well? So that's why we were lucky enough to have those two cohorts of serum from those different groups of people. And we found that the data suggests that 60% of the population in the forested region, and these are adults, we didn't look at children, were actually antibody positive, while less than 10% were antibody positive in the Atlantic coastal region. Speaking of antibody positive, can people get this more than once? That is an unknown. Um, the theory is that if you've had it once, then you would be protected against reinfection. But that's not known uh, 100%, but that's the theory. So let's go back to the landscape. It's changing in Guinea, right? Why and what's happening there? In the forested region, you have relatively sparsely populated groupings and villages that have developed local farming practices around a village hub. And these villages have grown, so more land is being cleared for planting rice, etc. So the sort of punctuated um, closed forest canopy is certainly becoming more open. Why is it important for us to know about these landscape differences and how they impact the disease? If we know the landscape is changing and we know it's associated with an increased incidence of disease, then we can flag this as a danger for increased spillover, not just of Lassa fever, but also other 
what we call high consequence or emerging viruses, i.e. those viruses where there's no therapeutics, no vaccines, and they have a high case fatality rate. And they could be the source of the next outbreak or epidemic, as we saw with Ebola in West Africa. Rats seem to play a significant role in the spread of Lassa fever. Tell us about their role and what kinds of rats we're talking about here. The specific type of rat is the Natal multi-mammate rat, and it's considered the main natural reservoir of Lassa fever. Uh, it's a commensal rodent and agricultural pest, actually, in the region. And they do live in close proximity to houses, to, to, to the dwellings in, in the villages. So that's definitely um, an issue that uh, these are the rats that carry the virus and they have a high association with humans. But how do they infect humans? Is it bites or fleas or urine? What droppings? What What's passing it? Yeah, the rats have the virus. They don't seem to get too sick with it. And so they carry on feeding. Uh, they eat the food that's in the house. They will urinate and excrete on that food. Some of that will become aerosolized to some extent as well. And so the villagers, the householders, will become infected through eating their food stuff or through aerosolized rodent urine and droppings. How did you go about this study? What kinds of samples did you take and from whom? As I mentioned previously, the samples that were in the forested region were from a mixture of bushmeat hunters and local villagers. And the samples that come from the Atlantic coast were part of a vaccine study um, for Ebola vaccine development. And the lead scientist on the ground was actually my former, it was part of a PhD student of a local uh, Guinean scientist called Joseph Okoibore. So after I met him during the Ebola outbreak, he worked in our diagnostics unit. And when I was meeting and discussing with him, he showed he wanted to do a PhD. So we created this project as part of his PhD program, which he's, he um, finished actually a couple of years back. And we're still working with him in the forested region on other seroepidemiology studies. When we say samples, taking samples from people, what kind of samples? Flesh, blood, hair? These are venous blood samples. Um, taken from volunteers that were through the sensitization of, of the village, explained to them why we want, we would like to take a blood sample, ask the volunteers and explain the, the relevance of the study. And in many cases, we will go back to the village and explain what we found. Always when human samples are used, there's some ethics involved. So give us a brief rundown on the ethics and the approval process needed when you take these samples. Yes, abiding by the ethical standards is uh, extremely high on our agenda. Um, for doing the work in Guinea, you have to present your protocol to the research ethics committee that's in Conakry. Yeah, after approval, then you obviously negotiate a material transfer agreement um, if the, as much of the research we would do in Guinea, but sometimes the sample has to be taken out for sort of enhanced analysis. And then we need to actually get a research ethics permission from our host university in the UK as well. Tell us who your partners and collaborators and funders were. I understand there's some very high-level people involved in this. 
So this was, as most successful research is, is part of an international collaboration. First has to be recognised the support, both politically and scientifically, from the Guinean government's Ministry of Health and the scientists that are part of the publication, but also working with the World Health Organization, colleagues at the Bernard Noch Institute of Virology in Germany, as well as London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and my former host organization now called the UK Health Security Agency. And importantly, you can't do any research without funding. And that was made possible by the US Food and Drug Administration, who have been funding my programs of work over the last five years, but primarily focused on uh, Ebola vaccine development and licensure. Going back to the study, when all was said and done, what did you find? We found that there was a significant difference in the level of seropositives in the Atlantic coast. Like I said, that was down to only 10%. But there was a really high positive response in the bushmeat hunter and village community in the forested region in the prefecture of, of uh, Gekadu and Macenta. And that, to us, was a major surprise because the incidence of, of severe disease is relatively low. Um, but the actual burden of disease is revealed to be much higher than we initially thought. These were surprises. Were there any others? Yeah, one of our collaborators, Kimberly Fornese, she specializes in looking at the relationship to um, the incidence of disease and how the landscape has changed. And I mentioned a little bit before that in the village, in the, in the forested region, these villages have a local farming economy, if you like. They have actually taken more and more land to clear to support their populations. And what Kim found was that the, the villages where there's more clearances, there was a higher incidence of Lassa uh, seropositive cases, which sort of suggests that the more that you expand your population, probably the more rats that you are attracting in, and increasing the incidence of zoonotic spillover from the rat to the villagers. What were the challenges, and were there limitations? The challenges are ensuring that the local Guinean authorities are on board with you. We always include, well, this is, like I say, that we're part of the PhD project of the Guinean scientists. So that was great to illustrate that we were training Guineans in this area of research, which will help support future outbreak response in Guinea. So then, like I said, you have to do all the paperwork in place to ensure that you're not breaking any rules. What do you think is the most important takeaway from your study? So the most important takeaway, I think, is that Lassa fever incidence is much higher than we had expected and we had initially thought, and that this human impact on landscape it seems to be directly linked to this increased incidence in genetic spillover in the forested region. And there's multiple examples of how human activities on the environment and also climate change is increasing the incidence of zoonotic spillover. And that's probably why you know, there's a lot more reports of outbreaks and of these emerging viruses that are exceptionally fatal. Talking about climate changes, do you think they'll continue to worsen diseases and not just this, but all kinds of diseases? Certainly. I mean, it isn't just my work. There's many scientists in the field that are looking at the relationship to the changing environment 
and the increased incidence of zoonotic spillover. Those viruses are reservoired in animals that spill over to the human population. And the more that forest clearings that we do, the more likely that humans are going to come into contact with animals. As the temperature changes, the vectors that carry some of these viruses, be it a tick or a mosquito, the range that they can exist in means that they can actually carry that pathogen and infect humans in areas that currently don't support that vector. And so you'll look at an increased incidence of the infection. This may be a bit out of your purview, but are there any immediate practical things that can be done to stall the impact? If you're looking at trying to reduce forest clearance, you could work with the local farming community to improve their current practices to increase the yield from the land that they have cleared which may be one way to prevent or the need to clear more forest areas. Are there future studies that you'd suggest on loss of fever? Our study was based on looking at the antibody response to a certain protein within the virus, what we call the, the nuclear protein. Um, so we, didn't, we, we don't have the sequence of the virus that infected these people, but we think the footprint that left behind, the antibody response to a nuclear protein, indicates they're infected with lasso fever. But we can't be 100% sure because we haven't actually sequenced the virus that infected them in the first place. So what would be a good thing is a broader sampling of the rodent population to actually sequence the virus that's actually infecting them to ensure that it is the virus we think it is, lasso fever, or it could be a variant of lasso fever. So the more knowledge we have of the animal population, what they're infected with, that will give us more insights to what's actually infecting humans. Well, Dr. Carroll, on a final note, tell us about yourself, your job, and what intrigues you most. Institute of Pandemic Sciences sounds incredibly relevant to the world. Yeah, so I class myself as a virologist. I did my postdoctoral training at National Institute of Health on pox viruses, actually. So you know, monkeypox pandemic, uh, recent pandemic has been of great interest of mine as well. But I also work on recombinant vaccines as well as emerging viruses. So my past job for the last 14 years was head of research at UK government high containment facilities in Port and Down. But a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to concentrate more on, on my research and I moved into academia and then started the role as a researcher in the Pandemic Sciences Institute at the University of Oxford. And so the Pandemic Sciences Institute was really born from the realisation that Oxford and, and many of our collaborators throughout the world, when we work together, we can do things pretty effectively. For example, the, the vaccine developed in Oxford, a lot of structural biology work on SARS-CoV-2 and also therapeutics. And so the Pandemic Sciences Institute is bringing together virologists, immunologists, vaccinologists, clinical trialists, modelers, as well as ethics into one central hub. So we're all in one place across the universe, across the uh, university, sorry, uh, to make us work more efficiently. But it's a very outward-looking institute as well. So, and we've got a conference on 10th to 11th of July on pandemic sciences that we obviously want to publicize and get as many international people to attend as possible. 
Where will that be held? It was uh, be held in Oxford on the 10th, 11th of July this year. At Oxford University. Okay, good to know. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Carroll. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the February 2023 article, Influence of Landscape Patterns on Exposure to Loss of Fever Virus, Guinea, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.